0: Let me tell you, I think it's helpful when you talk about science to realize there's a lot of different opinions on science. And they can really be divided into two sections. What I'll call um, non-theistic belief systems, meaning there's no God, there's no directed process. But even within those, there's three schools of thought. There's what's called gradual Darwinism. Things change slowly over time. But there's some problems in the fossil record with that. There's another group amongst agnostics. It's called punctuate equilibrium. Things had to jump. Uh, in the evolutionary process because of the problems with the uh, the fossil record. And there's another group over here called panspermia that would say, in science we've never been able to create life in a lab, so pan, from out there, life had to be posited here by an alien, through a multiverse, things like that. So these are lots of different theories that critique each other within agnostics. and Within Christian thinking there's a pretty wide spectrum that God did direct the path and we can see it through the different sciences, Some people think the earth is relatively young, who are Christians. Some think the world is relatively old, who are Christians. There's a real diversity of thought. And so I'm going to talk today about the idea that within Christian thinking, deist thinking, what is the proof that the laws of the universe, the things we see around us, really do require or point to a creator? I met a guy kind of from the older earth school of of thinking and Christian thought many, many years ago. His name was Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross. He's an astrophysicist. And he came to our church and and he shared this story, which I loved when I was talking to him backstage and later on stage. He said he travels around the world as an astrophysicist who was once an atheist and agnostic. And he talks about how the science led him through physics to believe in God. Well, he typically sits in uh, in the back row section. But he got a call that day at the airport and said from up front, hey, um, Mr. Ross, could you come up here? He came up, what's going on? Hey, we see you're traveling by yourself. Yeah, well, we have a family who has a child. They'd like to sit together. Would you be willing to give up your seat? I really got to get there. I can't be knocked off the flight. They said, no, 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 we'll keep you on the flight. Sure. So sure enough, he gave up his seat, and they moved him to first class. First time sitting in first class. He goes to sit down in first class, and another guy had been moved up to the seat next to him. He turns, it's a German man, and a German guy says... Hello, I'm German. That's my t- terrible German accent there. I won't even try to do it. He says, he says so the German guy says, hi, uh, I'm German. I'm a skeptic. I'm an atheist. And I'm a quantum physicist. To which Hugh Ross says, well, I'm Canadian. I'm a astrophysicist. I'm a believer in Jesus, God. And I believe the Bible is from God. To which the German says, this, is, again, forget the German. accent." The German scientist says, this is going to be an interesting plane ride. And for the next two hours, they began to share scientific facts. And the quantum physicist had never really talked to a Christian astrophysicist who had claims and facts and science to show how the universe and physics itself does come from a designer. So I want to talk about some of those today. But I actually want to step back even further before that and just say, think of the things they talked about, like, Strong nuclear force, or weak nuclear force, or gravity, or inertia. All these different things you've heard about, these laws that govern the world. Have you ever thought about those laws? They're invisible. Another word for invisible is immaterial. An immaterial law, meaning you've never held on to gravity, but you know it exists. you never held on to inertia, but you can see it happening. It's also unchangeable, meaning it's true, Ten years from now, it was true a thousand years ago, it's true ten million years from now. It's an unchangeable law. Gravity is just going to be there. It, it's a law. It's invisible, it's unchangeable, and it's universal. Meaning, it's true if you're on the earth, it's true if you're on Mars, it's true if you're on the moon. Well, if there's such a thing as invisible, universal, and, and unchangeable laws, wouldn't that be the natural extension of what would come out of an invisible or immaterial universal, unchangeable God? Meaning if there was an immaterial God, it would make sense that the world would have these kind of immaterial laws that are universal. If there's a God that's the same yesterday, today, and forever, it would make sense he'd create laws that were today, yesterday, today, and forever that we could count on. We'll come back to that for a second. 500 B.C., there's a guy named Jeremiah, and he's writing about God's love for his people, the Hebrews, Israelites, the Jews. And here's what Jeremiah says. He says, by this... But this is what the Lord says. I would no more reject my people than I would change my laws that govern day and night, earth and sky. This is 500 B.C., and he's saying there are laws that govern the earth, that govern the stars, that govern the heavens. Another way to say it is if, if my covenant is not with day or night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth. At 500 B.C., God is saying the whole world is controlled by invisible laws. Now, at 500 B.C., you'd say, what's this witchcraft? What's this superstition? Invisible laws that control everything? And yet we know through science, thousands of years later, that there are all kinds of invisible laws that control the earth and the heavens above us. And God somehow says that these invisible laws, I would not change them because they come from me any more than I would reject my people. And Jeremiah was saying that there's a group of people who've been punished for their wrongdoing, but God was going to keep a remnant because he was always going to be faithful to his people. Even during times of punishment and times of difficulty, he would always keep his nation a nation. It's interesting, there's a story of King Louis. And King Louis was gathering his fellow thinkers together to talk about the existence of God. He turned to his fellow priests and thinkers and philosophers and he said, what is your best argument for God's existence? One of the priests came forward and he says, I'll give it to you in a word. One word for the existence of God? Yeah. He said, Hebrews, the Jews. This is a group of people that has been attacked Deported, dispersed by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians, by the Persians, by the Greeks, by the Romans, by all of history. And yet they still keep coming back together. They still remain. There is no way from a casual viewing of history that these people should still exist as a people. It's proof that God, like you said in that passage, just as he has laws that govern the universe, he also keeps his promises to you and me. So what is physical and transcendent is also Personal. So we're going to look at those laws together here. So let's start with the idea that laws do point to a lawgiver. Where do laws come from? Well, if you have laws that are unchangeable and universal and all that, it had to come from someone who made that, created that. And so we have two hypotheses. Hypothesis number one is an irrational process created a rational world that can be studied rationally. Huh. How does an irrational process create a rational world that can be studied rationally? That is a hypothesis, but it's like there seems to be an inconsistency there. Another hypothesis is that a rational person with a mind where information comes from, a rational person, create a rational world that could be studied rationally. What would make sense that a rational world could be studied rationally if it was made by a rational person? See how it's a natural extension of deism, the idea that God created things? Because rationality had to start with someone or something rational. Let me give you four things, whether whether you believe in God, Jesus, the Bible, four things you assume are true all the time. And they're all invisible, universal, and unchangeable. Math, logic, science, and morality. You assume every day that math is true. Whether you write down 1 plus 1 is 1, you say, that's wrong because 1 plus 1 is 2. It is true whether you write it down or not, and yet you've never had a handful of math. you never had a handful of logic. And yet when you even say, well, prove to me there's a God. Do you want me to be logical? Great. Can you prove me that there's such a thing as logic? Have you ever had your logic in your hand? No. Logic, math, and science, and morality all are built on three things. They're universal. It's always wrong to kill children for fun. That's always wrong. Whether you're on the moon, whether you grew up in a culture that told you it was okay, whether you have psychology and brain chemistry that tells you it's okay, no, no, there's something immaterial over what your chemistry tells you that that's wrong. You've never had a handful of courage, you've never had a handful of love, and yet you operate, I operate every day as if these universal truths exist. So I've seen love, I've seen some people kiss each other. You've seen two lips touch each other. You've then assigned it to something invisible, universal, and unchangeable. So even when you're dialoguing on these things, you're presuming things that come out of the idea of a rational God that made the universe. Now, if you're an atheist, and there are many very super smart atheists, you'd say, Chad has just told you hogwash. One of the most famous atheists is a man named Peter Adkins. He's wicked smart. I think he's out of Oxford. I've heard him debate many, many Christians, and he would say this. What Chad has told you is not true. And the reason it's not true is because you can get something from nothing. He said, Chad is telling you that you have to get something, like the laws of gravity, the laws of inertia, logic, uh, mathematics, from somebody who is logical. But that's not true, because we got something, the universe, from the beginning, which was nothing. And he would tell you the reason you can get something out of nothing is because if that something comes from a nothing that has the characteristics of, say, a donut machine... If the nothing that began the universe was a donut machine, one shouldn't be surprised when it pops out donuts. So you can get nothing to produce something. That would be what he'd say. And I've seen him debate very rigorously on this many, many people across the country. And he would say, let me prove to you that the universe comes from nothing. If you take all the positively charged particles in the universe, and all the negatively charged particles in the universe, did you know they cancel each other out and they equal nothing? Proof." That something came from nothing. Like, well, I think I followed that. Sounds formidable. He's smart. The Christian response to that would be, are you a bookkeeper? If you ever pulled out a bookkeeper and you've said, hey, I got some deposits, deposit, 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 and you total them up, then you put in some withdrawals, minus, 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 minus. If your deposits and your withdrawals all equal zero, that means the total is nothing, but it doesn't mean you didn't have somebody putting the deposits in and didn't have somebody taking the withdrawals out. You didn't have actual withdrawals. Just because it equals nothing doesn't mean it didn't come from something. The other thing a Christian might say is, nowhere in the known world have we ever observed, and that's scientific, something you observe, it's repeatable, because it's unchangeable, it happens again and again, you've never seen something come from nothing any other time except this time and space alluded to by the non-theistic evolutionists. All right, let me get back to the passage. We'll make sure you're following with me here. So in the Bible, here's what it says. My laws, these unchangeable, universal, invisible, immaterial laws, they're mine. They come from me. They govern the night and the day, the earth and the sky. And then in the New Testament, Paul shows up and says, And not only is it God, but Jesus was God. He's the one who gave us the laws. This is just radical stuff. By him, Jesus, all things were created. He made those laws. The things that are in heaven, the planets, but also the things that govern the planets. And the things that are on earth. He says the visible things, planets, stars, moons, and invisible forces. To which again, if you were sitting at 300 BC or 100 AD, you'd say, what's this witchcraft? What's this superstition that we need invisible forces? But science has shown us the world's filled with invisible forces that rule the universe. And it goes on, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and look at this, and in him all things consist. He's saying, at, a, at like 70 AD, that everything around us is held together by forces. Now, if you're sitting at, a, at 60 AD, you're saying, I don't think the table needs to be held together by forces. What is this nonsense, Right? And yet science has told us that if you look into the atoms, you know what we mostly are? You know what this table mostly is? Space. And it is held together. That that, that center of that atom, that that neutron and that proton are held together by an invisible force called strong nuclear force. And and that, that electron spinning around there, it is held together by an invisible force called electromagnetism. And it's got to be just strong enough to hold it in orbit, but also weak enough that it can break up and connect with another piece to form the chemicals we have to form life. Everything God said in 60 AD that might seem crazy has been validated as his laws hold all things together. Let's go to the universe. We got planets. All leading up, big sun, different planets, and yet... All these planets spin because they are held together by invisible forces. What Sir Isaac Newton called gravity, an invisible force that holds the planets together. You tell exactly how that works. So, I've got a little experiment here to show you kind of how Sir Isaac Newton thought about gravity because he invented the word gravity. He's a Bible believing Christian, loved Jesus, wrote as so much about the Bible as he did about, about science. So I want you to imagine that this right here is the fabric of space. We're going to put it up on the screen here before you can see it. This is the fabric of time and space. Have you ever seen a sci-fi? The fabric of time and space. So this is a planet, and if you're going to take a planet and you're going to roll it across time and space, it would go straight, right? Just straight back and forth, straight back and forth. And so what Sir Isaac Newton thought is that the sun sits in the middle... And that gravity acted like a string that kind of held these things at a distance. And the string was like this invisible hook that spun them around. And he called it gravity. It's what makes the universe go around. But Einstein shows up and says, no, 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 there's not an invisible string. He says, instead, the fabric of time and space, when you put a sun in the middle of time and space, it bends the fabric of time and space. So then, when a planet is operating in the same solar system, because gravity bends space, the other planets orbit around it. And this was the idea that there's this invisible force of the weight and density of a a, a sun allows the planets to orbit. And if you have multiple planets, you'll see both of them will roll around in orbital orbits around the sun. And of course, in a frictionless environment, the energy doesn't stop. And if this was big enough, if it was 10 times bigger, I could throw the the two different balls in there, and you would see that as they spin, the small one would rotate around the less small one. Because in the same way that the sun bends space, the earth bends space as well. Did you know we have an effect on the sun because we bend space a little bit? Did you know that the wobble, we have a little bit of a wobble because we affect the moon, and the moon affects us as it goes around us? And did you know this? That the closer you are to the sun, the faster you go because the bend near the sun is deeper than the bend away from the sun. So, for example, here's the earth, here's Mars. Because Mars is a little bit farther away from the sun, it's one and a half times longer to go around, but actually takes about three times longer to get there because the bend isn't quite as deep. Sir Isaac Newton called it gravity, and he had it kind of half right. There was a law, but he didn't quite get it right. Einstein shows up and says, no, this is his theory of general relativity. There it is. What is general relativity? It's that. It's the idea that sun and moons and stars, they bend space. And that's why we can look through a telescope at at galaxies far, far away, and we can find out how many planets there might be, because we can see them wobble based on the number of Planets that might be in that particular galaxy, they spin around it. And that's how scientists use physics to find invisible laws that govern the universe. Exactly what he was saying back here in 500 B.C. Jeremiah, invisible laws, my laws that govern the universe, as well as what Paul's saying, that Jesus holds all things together through invisible forces. Now, Sir Isaac Newton, like I said, was a big believer in the Bible and a big believer in Jesus. And I'd like you to hear a story that's told about him trying to dialogue with his secular um, uh, agnostic colleagues just to have them consider the evidence that God might really exist and these laws might really point to a lawgiver. Let's watch this story together.
1: Sir Isaac Newton's resolute belief in God's existence is also evident in numerous descriptions of a legendary conversation that may have occurred in the library of his London residence. Perhaps the encounter went something like this. Inspired by his studies of the universe and the motions of the heavenly orbs within his field of view, Newton hired a skilled artisan to construct a miniature replica of the solar system. When complete, the mechanism included a large gilded ball representing the Sun and smaller spheres for the planets and their moons. Each was attached to wire arms of varying lengths and geared together by cogs and belts that could move the components in perfect harmony. It was a masterpiece of engineering. One afternoon, as Newton worked alone in his study, a friend stopped by to visit. He too was a man of science, but unlike Sir Isaac, he believed that the universe came into being on its own, without the intervention of divine purpose or design. Newton's model immediately captured his attention. And when he turned the crank, his eyes widened in wonder as the orbiting bodies performed their choreographed ballet. After a few moments, the agnostic scientist exclaimed, what an exquisite model this is, who made it? Without a hint of a smile, Newton looked up from his work and replied, nobody made it. A bit startled, his colleague responded. Evidently, you did not understand my question. I I asked you who made this splendid device? Again, Newton solemnly assured him, nobody. Instead, this collection of matter you so much admire just came together under its own power to assume its magnificent form. You must think me a fool. Of course somebody made it. He is a genius, and I want to know who he is. After pausing for a moment, Newton replied, My friend, even though this beautiful model is but a modest imitation of a much grander system whose laws you know quite well, I am unable to convince you that this mere toy exists without a designer and maker. Yet, you profess to believe that the great original from which this replica is taken once came into being entirely on its own accord. Now tell me, by what sort of reasoning do you arrive at such an inconsistent conclusion? Newton's friend could offer no rebuttal. Instead, he humbly acknowledged the Lord, he is God.
0: I doubt he said, "Is the Lord. But it did get him thinking about, yeah, if this machine requires a designer and it's a mere replica of something far bigger, maybe I need to rethink this. That's why what he's saying is that Jesus is making the invisible God with these invisible laws, he made it visible for us. He came into the world so we could see him. And we believe in invisible things, cell phones, you know, wires, radio waves. We believe in all kinds of invisible things that we've learned are actually there. This is a Tesla coil. And if I told you that I could take this, this light bulb and I could turn it on without putting it into an outlet, you'd think I was crazy. But I could tell you there are invisible electricity I can produce and I can tap into it. I can make the invisible visible. I'll show you. If you've never seen a Tesla coil before, a little shock to it. Works off a DC current. You'll see it actually produces electricity. That's going through the air, whether this is here or not. When I get it closer, you can suddenly see that the light bulb, without even touching it, it can bring the visible and make it suddenly the invisible becomes visible. I can move it around. Whatever pace is going on with the uh, Tesla coil, electricity can be picked up in the same way from the bulb. Look at that slower or faster. Now, these forces are at work whether you see it or not, but the light bulb comes in place and it suddenly begins to make visible that which is invisible. And the intensity at which you set the the, the power, or the, the pacing at which you set the power, is picked up by the fluorescent light. All of a sudden something that was invisible is made visible. And that's the same idea when God comes into the earth. He says, I, Jesus Christ, was God in visible form so you could find the things that were otherwise invisible to. You could observe them. You could assume them. But I am now making my love, my logic, my power, my might visible to you. And that's what Jesus was about. And that's why Paul says, in him all things consistent. In him he makes the visible and the invisible held together through Jesus. All right, let me turn that off before I electrocute myself. Tesla coil. The invisible made visible. So, I've tried to propose to you that laws point to a lawmaker. But they're not just laws. These are precise laws. These laws are so precise, they're mind-bogglingly precise. What do I mean? Precise lawmakers, precise laws that are fine-tuned for life, point to a purpose, and a purposeful lawgiver. That the person behind how life was designed, how physics was put together, must have had a purpose for all this to work the way it works. Again, there's lots of books on this. You can pick up ones if you want to learn more. The Case for the Creator is one. Within Christian Thinking, there's The, the Creator and the Cosmos by Hugh Ross. There's The Created Cosmos by more of a young earth person. But There are all kinds of science to these ideas of physics. And here's what scientists have found. There are 30 principles. There's some of them. That if they are not fine-tuned to a level of precision that is astronomically beyond comprehension, we couldn't have life. Gravitational force constant, electromagnetic force, strong, weak, as I already mentioned before, what holds the atoms together, what allows them to break into other things. Even the number of electrons and protons in the universe has to be fine-tuned to have life. Ever thought about how many electrons and protons there are? I haven't because I'm not a physicist. But physicists have. And in order to have the life we have, the planets we have, the vegetation we have, you have to have enough electrons and protons to form all that stuff. And the amount of electrons and protons is so fine-tuned, it is fine-tuned to precision of 1 to 10 to the 37th power. What in the world is 1 to 10 to the 37th power? That would be like covering the earth with dimes. And that layer of dimes you cover the earth in would be 239 miles deep. That's a lot of dimes. And within all those dimes, we're going to paint one red dime, and we're going to mix it up into the 239,000 feet deep dimes around the earth. We're going to blindfold someone, and they got to go through the earth and pick out one dime and pull it out and go, got it! Those are the chances of just getting the electrons and the protons precision fine-tuned for life. That's pretty precise. Let me give you just two more, just two more. In fact, let me, join me, we're gonna go into some science together. I wanna talk about gravity for a second. These are all the different formulas required to form life. Let's just take gravity. If gravity wasn't precisely fine-tuned, along with strong nuclear force and weak nuclear force, we literally could not have life. This is gravity. That's the formula for gravity. Now, how precise is that? How exact is that for life? I want you to imagine a ruler. This ruler is extended across the entire known universe with little increments of one inch like a ruler would have. And gravity, is the setting across that 14 billion, not miles, light years long. That's how long our ruler is. That's a pretty big ruler. So this 14 billion light year ruler that could be set at any one inch setting for gravity, you know where it's set? That one inch that it's set at is the precise setting required for life. You move it one inch to the left or one inch to the right, and life as we know it in the universe could not exist. That's a pretty precise setting. And that's just one factor. Along with electrons and protons, that's gravity. Let's take the cosmological constant. Like, What's that? That's the expansion rate of the universe. See, if the universe expanded too quickly, you wouldn't have time for planets to form and life to form and and for chemicals to bond and atoms to make, and you could have maybe a bacteria here or there, but you'd never have life. Except for the cosmological constant. So how precise is it tuned? Well, one in 100 million, billion, 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 billion. If you don't know what that number means, our U.S. government doesn't either. Don't worry about it. But that's how precise the cosmological constant has to be. They've given an analogy. That would be like being out in space and throwing a dart at a dartboard. And you hit the bullseye. But the bullseye on the Earth... From space is the size of an atom. That's one trillionth of one trillionth of an inch. To be able to throw a dart from space to earth and hit that atom is how precise the cosmological constant has to be in place in order for life to begin. And these are just a few of 30 plus factors. Each one you tweak it one slight degree and life can't exist. These are precise laws that point to this The universe was designed for life with a purpose. And that would have come from not just a lawgiver, but a purposeful, precise engineer. I think that's why Paul shows up in Colossians and says this weird thing. He says it's not just that there's a theory out there and there's a law out there, but that God is not just an equation, he's a person. Look at how many times he says him Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He makes the invisible visible. By Him, He made all things. in heaven and all things on Earth. The visible things and the invisible things we're just now starting last hundred years to discover. All things were created through Him, but also for Him. If God made things with a purpose, you were made to fulfill the purpose of your creator. And the Bible is claiming that Jesus is that creator. He is before all things. He existed before the earth and the planets. And he is in all things. He's holding you together at your atomic level with strong nuclear force and electromagnetism. Now if that's true, Jesus might be worth considering. You may not believe that, but it's pretty amazing. These claims made at 500 B.C. and 100 A.D. have shown to prove themselves to be true that many years later. So Hugh and the German scientists are sitting there on the plane that day, and after the two hours, the German turns to him without a German accent and says, hey, how did you know to be prepared for all these questions I have? I never had anyone answer one of my questions, let alone two hours of them. He says, well, this is what I do for a living, and and I've got a whole website called Reasons to Believe, and I give reasons every day of science that points to belief in God from astrophysics. The guy sat there for a moment, the quantum physicist, he says huh. He says, what are you doing? He's like, I'm calculating. What are you calculating? I'm calculating the probability of two astrophysicists or quantum physicists ending up on a plane, both being moved to first class, both having a conversation, and one who's incredibly skeptical around somebody who actually has some answers to some of my questions. It seems pretty improbable. So maybe God doesn't just work by winding up the universe. Maybe he works through individual conversations and data and things we come across as well. Maybe the God of the universe came near because he wants to know you and know me. He doesn't just come to know you, he came to die for us, it says, because he knows we don't live up to the moral standards that we even use on other people. You shouldn't gossip. Do you gossip? Well, sometimes. People shouldn't steal. Have you ever stole? Well, sometimes. We don't live up to our own immaterial, universal, unchanging laws. That same God who made us came and died for us. That's how much he loves us. Maybe you've never seriously considered Jesus. This was an interview done in the, uh, the Saturday Evening Post. Here's the article with Albert Einstein. What life means to Einstein. And Einstein, smart dude. Sir Isaac Newton, smart dude. He discovered what we now know as calculus to figure out the rotation of the planets. That's what Newton did. Einstein built on his theory of gravity and got the theory of general relativity that I showed you. But look what Einstein said and interviewed in the Saturday Evening Post. He said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am, look at that word, enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus was from Nazareth. That's what he means. He means Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, you know what? Einstein's smart. He goes, I'm not quite there in believing it, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. If Einstein was intrigued by Jesus, that's one smart guy. Maybe you and I should be intrigued by Jesus. Maybe these laws do point to a lawgiver. And maybe these precise laws point to a purposeful lawgiver who has a purpose for your life. Here's my proposal to you. I want you to follow the invisible evidence that we've talked about today from your soul, morality, logic, mathematics and science, all these invisible, immaterial, unchangeable things that you assume are true in every conversation you have, follow the evidence of that and see where it leads. But also follow the visible evidence, not just from your soul, but from your very bones. Here's what a psalmist once said as he was wrestling with and being struck by who God was and the purpose God might have for his life. He says, and my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. Something about my soul. And again, we've never touched your soul, you've never seen your soul. When you ever see somebody die, something leaves their body that was immaterial, right? There's an immaterial evidence there that you've sensed, you've been around, you've been near. My soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice. That God came and saved me, He delivered me, He forgave me, He died for me. Eventually, the Psalmist would find out. Then He says this: it's not just my soul, though, I got more evidence than that. All my bones say, there's something in my very chemistry, my very bones that say, Lord, who is like you? Now, that is a picture of Sir Isaac Newton. He did not write the book of Psalms. But I put his picture up for a reason. Because Sir Isaac Newton was once asked, if you had one proof for God, what would it be? This Sir Isaac Newton. The guy was a genius. He says, if I only needed one proof for God, it would come from my opposable thumb, his bones. I was telling my wife this the other day. I said, honey, it was amazing. Sir Isaac Newton said he only had needed one proof for God, and it was his disposable thumb. She goes, his disposable thumb? I said, yeah. She's like, Chad, do you have a disposable thumb? Yes, I have two disposable thumbs, honey. She's like, really? You have two disposable thumbs? Yes, what is wrong with you? I have two disposable thumbs. How many do you have? She goes, you mean opposable. Yes, I mean opposable. So I mix up words all the time. So yes, so here are my two not disposable although I I, I can't take it off, Um, these are my two opposable thumbs. Sir Isaac Newton said just by looking at how the bones are created and designed to create something as tools for design, he could follow the evidence of physics and follow the evidence in his very bones that there is a God who made him and created him for purpose. And he made him, if he made, Sir Isaac Newton, he made you and he made me. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our journey into physics and bones and Elton John and Rocket Man and little Imagine Dragons there. As you think about the fact there might be evidence all around you that points to a God who made you, created you, and has a purpose for you. Thanks for being with us today. If you uh, would love to just continue the journey with us, we got an online service coming up for Easter. You can watch online on our website. We got Easter service we'd love to have you be part of um, coming on for Easter weekend. You can get tickets for that. They're they're complimentary but grab a ticket to make sure we can spread people out and have a space for everybody their family and their friends. Thanks for being here. Join us next week as we figure out how those salmon go upstream and how those butterflies know how to get down to Brazil. I'll talk to you next week.